This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hello, Stephanie. Hello. Hello. Good afternoon, Ms. Vogel. How are you? I'm very well. I'm very well. How are you? hanging in there. Thank you so much for being here with us today. And thank you so much for the beautiful and caring portrait that you've made of uh, John Ware's life and John Ware reclaimed. Um, It's really beautiful for us to have that untold story. Thank you. I'm, I'm, um, I'm honored and humbled to hear you say those words. Thank you. I really loved it. Um, It felt so, uh, it's such a calming and warm and inviting story that you give us. There's something reassuring and just so lovely about the film I itself. Want, the I wanted it to it. be. I did want it to be that because that is the effect that John Ware and his story has on me. And I did want that to come through. So it's, it's nice. <laughs> it's definitely working. Um, uh, I wanted to ask a couple of things that you maybe go over in the beginning of the film, but I was hoping you would talk about with us. Um, Can you tell us how the West and Western mythologies became important to you? Mm, Yes. Thank you for that question. Um, I grew up in the city in Canada that most embodies Western mythology. Calgary is a city that was founded upon that story. And we are best known for uh, an annual celebration that is called the Calgary Exhibition and Stampede, which, you know, having seen the film, you you got a little bit of an intro to. So growing up in Calgary, being born here, you actually cannot avoid that identity. Um, You can reject it, but you can't pretend it isn't there. When I was growing up in the 50s and 60s, that was even more the case. And I embraced that fully. So did my brother Richard. So did all my siblings and cousins. And as I got a little bit older and that mythology, that story came to mean even more to me, seeing that people of African descent were completely erased from that story was painful. And I uh, not only put it aside, but even began to reject it as a place where my blackness was not welcome. Mm -hmm. So discovering the existence of John Ware at the time that I did in my life was a gift because it allowed me not in that very moment, it was a gradual process of, of coming together as a person with these two very distinct identities. Um, It allowed me to be more fully myself. So it was a, um, it was a, 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 an erasure that had the potential to do incredible damage to me as a person, but had, I had that damage, um, mitigated by the existence of John Ware, by, by the way he walked through these same spaces so, so many years before I was even born. 
Can you remind us of what some of the memorial spaces named after John Ware are in the area where you're from? I remember one of the images of a mountain range. Yes, Was his there's... name available to you, even if his story wasn't? No, not, not as a youngster. No, okay. those place names began to be put in place um, at a time when I was not aware of those. And none of them at that time were in Calgary. So there is a building on the Southern Alberta Institute of Technology campus that is named for him. And there is a junior high school situated in Calgary that is named for him those both happened um, sort of as I was approaching my teens so no not in my childhood and the uh, the places that are named for him like John Ware Mountain the two Ware Creeks um, there's a John Ware hiking trail or a riding trail I think most people actually ride their horses there uh, I think there are seven places altogether. Those were not available. His name was not available to me attached to those places as a child. Okay, it's fascinating that he later became remembered in geography and in signs um, so long after uh, his impact and his passing. You know, the mythology of the open frontier, of course, is incredibly and the cowboy life are tantamount to U.S. mythologies of identity, <laughs> of white masculine selfhood, of rugged masculinity, of manifest destiny, and the, the development of the nation, even of a mythological interiority. Uh, the way we think about the plains as being a space to locate and identify oneself, um, we, we see, you know, the Oscars celebrating Western after Western after Western, even the most recent winner um, is about nomads who kind of wander through these open spaces in the US. Um, and you've said a little bit about how uh, a cowboy image, notions of the West are really important um, in where you're from, from Calgary. Is that story similarly powerful in Canada as it is in the U.S., as this insistent narrative we keep telling ourselves about who we are? I don't think it has the same status. There are places in the country that have looked down upon that identity. So I didn't, I don't think it began to feel important until uh, people of African descent, people like me started claiming that cowboy mythology for us. And it was, was in many ways only as a pushback against that claiming and reclaiming that other people in the country even suddenly realized they cared. So no, I don't think it occupied that same place for the rest of the country. That's really fascinating. Yeah. Um, in my own work, I've done uh, research on uh, Black cowboy films from the 1930s uh, and thought about the ways in which African-Americans have uh, throughout American history and certainly since the early 20th century um, both been cowboys and ranchers, but also worked pretty uh, vigorously to write ourselves um, as memory and as imagination into that story. That's uh, amazing. 
but I don't think that people know, but I don't think it's general knowledge, right? So the films that I studied featured a, a black cowboy who was a, a crooner named Bob Blake. Um, and every time I talked to any black people about him, there were people from a certain generation who knew Herb Jeffries and Bob Blake. I had a mentor who used to pretend to be Bob Blake in the alleyways of Newark, New Jersey, <laughs> when he was a kiddo, and draw oh. his little silver pistols. Um, but you know, folks didn't know about Bill Pickett and that love these black cowboys that you feature in your film, um, in those uh, historical photographs. So even the people who were creating those spaces of imagination didn't know about the black cowboys that actually existed. Uh, my guess is that the film director, Spencer Williams, um, that even later uh, filmmaker like, oh, I can't recall immediately right now, the director of Posse, this film from the 1990s. Um, uh, there's films from the 1970s. Some of them were trying to recuperate a cowboy history. And so uh, we're studying it. We're thinking about how, you know, in the U.S., about 30 percent of um Cowhands uh, were African-American, about 30% Mexican and indigenous, and about 30% were white, but only 30% were white, where most mm -hmm. of the legend shows you all of the cowhands being um, white. Yeah, which tells you- dominates. Yeah, mm -hmm. that, that really demonstrates how deliberate that erasure was. But just to go back for a minute, so this mentor of yours then, mm -hmm. he may not have known that he may not have known about Nat Love and, and um, he might not have, you know, when he was telling me the story, it was um, in the context of my research on films that he watched as a yeah. child, as a, and he was a historian. This was um, Jim Horton, a uh, historian of uh, African-American um, uh, free people of color in the North, uh, Boston, particularly. Um, and that was just a story he told me about his childhood because he was so excited <laughs> that I was doing this research. And, you know, my grandfather, um, who was an old, uh, uh, well, when he was my, when I was born, he was older, um, a black man from New Orleans would uh, sit in his recliner and watch his cowboy, you know, his cowboy pictures. <laughs> he said, put on the cowboy, watch the cowboy. That's what he would say. <laughs> so who was, who was he watching? Well, he was Roy Rogers and anybody, but okay. Roy Wart Rogers, John Wayne, mm. um, uh, you know, how the West was won, any of those sort of 1950s, uh, 1960s um, U.S. cowboy pictures. What do you think it was that drew McEwen to wear as a subject? You know, the historian who wrote that mythology you call he mm. called uh, John Ware's Cow Country. That's a very good question. He wrote, I'm going to say, more than 45 books. He mm -hmm. was an incredibly prolific writer, and he was very interested in um, the stories of this place mm -hmm. because many we, we, we didn't have many books about this place. He uh, had the means and the opportunity to be the storyteller because he had occupied so many positions of power um, from being the mayor of Calgary at one time to being the lieutenant governor of the province, uh, many, many other positions of power. So 
I think as a historian, when wanting to tell the stories of Southern Alberta and of Calgary, uh, I think he he did not want to leave this figure from the memories of the old timers who he would have been talking to about all kinds of stories. He did not want to see him left out. And once you learn about John Ware's story, you can't help but be drawn to him. He was just such a charismatic figure. So I think it was probably that he heard of the story and thought, oh, here's, you know, this is another person that I should write about, and then became very drawn to the man himself. That's my guess, but I don't know for sure. I think you're pretty generous about some of the ways in which the the book is um, openly racist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know if it's openly. Um, I, I think that you're really, it seems like you're really generous in the film about appreciating what McEwen offers um, and just very lightly touching on the kinds of things he does to um, distort the memory of where. Yeah, and that is um, that's kind of the the tightrope I walk because mm-hmm. I actually knew Grant McEwen as well when mm-hmm. I was a young writer. He was an old mm-hmm. writer, mm-hmm. and he um, was a very nice man. And mm-hmm. quite apart from that. I think the reason I feel some generosity toward him is because I think John Ware may have been forgotten if someone of the stature of Grant McEwen had not said, we must not forget this person. So I can't bear to read the book. It's just, it just caused, it's like being stabbed a thousand times at the same time. I, I recognize the place that it holds in keeping the memory of John Ware alive. Mm-hmm. You compile so many different pathways to accessing a different and fuller story than that legacy that got handed down. Mm-hmm. And you say in the film that you wanted to be a writer as a child, but you appear even further as a phenomenal historian in recovering and reclaiming where in your use of archives, artifacts, the museum exhibit, archeological surveys and digs, census records, um, and DNA testing even to tell the yeah. story. And you also become yeah. then a filmmaker and a playwright. So mm-hmm. I'm just wondering if your search for where has supported or been a part of professional development and artistic inspiration for you. So much so. And that has gone hand in hand with my interest in my own family story as well. That part of my life brings me so much joy. I love research so much. I drop into it and I am happy, happy, happy. Mm-hmm. And that was just an accident because of the stories that I wanted to tell and the ways in which our our histories were absent from public records. And I had to find so many other ways of getting to the documents and getting to the information. So I just feel so blessed that as a writer, I didn't indulge my first instinct, which was to write fantasy novels, uh, which I still love. Mm -hmm. And maybe I'll get a chance to go back to that at some point. But if I had not 
wanted to tell these particular stories, I would never, I may never have known how much I love research, those archives, all of those ways of finding our, finding our people, finding our ancestors. Yeah, it's beautiful. You know, in the film, you also use animation and cartoon images and Mm -hmm. the reenactment that these join your historical methods. Are you supplementing the record with an active, perhaps fantasy (laughs) or alternative remembering? (laughs) I, I wouldn't have thought that, but I think you've hit the nail right on the head. Um, I, I wanted to have some way of, having Mildred live apart from just in the photo. So in the way that I have Fred, Fred Whitfield, the Texas cowboy there as a, a physical presence of John Ware in the film, mm-hmm. I wanted something of Mildred, but I didn't want to go to reenactments of their relationship or anything like that. So at first the notion to have animation was so that I could see Mildred move and see them hold each other. And then I, I thought this is the only opportunity I will ever have to be taught how to get on a horse and ride by John Ware. This is the only opportunity I will have to be with him on his land um, in the same time and space because he was there on that land and I can go there now as a visitor, but I've never been able to be with him so that animation of putting myself with him um and the I'm not an animator myself so working with the animator was uh you know a very painstaking process but in the image at the end when John Ware is watching me ride away and the look on his face holds the same concern and love that that I see in my face at the beginning of the film when, when it's, it's the real me looking up at the image of him at the Glenville Museum, that mirroring of those mm-hmm. expressions, I was very grateful for because that was the animator who, who found, found our way to that in the film. And I feel quite emotional actually when I see that when I see myself galloping off across John Ware's land toward Calgary and toward my life and the place where I would one day recuperate as you say his story Mm -hmm. Um, yes and I think the way you've described it it's very accurate well just so everyone gets it the child on the horse in the beginning and in the end that's you Mm -hmm. it's beautiful I think she looks like you a little bit. <laughs> well, she is based on the, the childhood photos of me. And I, I don't know why I felt that that would be obvious, but um, lots of people don't pick up on that, Stephanie. So I'm glad that you did. Uh, and I wish now that I had found some way to make it more clear that that's me, because I do think it's important for people to know that's not just some random child. <laughs> well, the, I think that even if it is just an individual, child that's not you that sort of childly notion of reaching back into the past of creating a story of wanting a history that there's a kind of a yearning there and you allow John Ware in the body through that reenactment to 
live in the film to be not just someone who we're making up and you give him this kind of spectral substance for us. And then the animation stages this meeting to me that looked like a meeting between loves with Mildred and John Ware and between loving generations with uh, John Ware as a, a kind of loving spirit mm -hmm. <laughs> and those of us who search for him. Mm -hmm. um, you give us this sense of imagined memory of missing memory, what Toni Morrison might call re-memory, even as you grab for us these really specific, amazing details. I mean, when you find those curlers, I just want to jump out of my seat. <laughs> I don't know if that's a statement about me as a historian or a nerd, but that was just the most amazing find. How did you feel about that? When you kind of happened upon that, I just have so many questions about the Mallory's and those yeah. artifacts. It was incredible because uh, DNA testing, as you probably know, is evolving every month. There are new things that they're able to do. And I had asked Mary Mallory if she had maybe, you know, did she have an old hairbrush, anything that might have um, that sort of thing on it and she said i i fully expected her to say no of course not i didn't keep a hairbrush brush from 40 years ago when mm -hmm. nettie died um when she said well the only thing i might have and then she went to a back room and she moved stuff around and she came back out holding that that case and open it up. And when I saw those curlers and I saw those gray hairs wrapped around them, it was um, a goosebump inducing moment. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, for her to have them. And second of all, for her to say to keep them is mm -hmm. amazing. And it mm -hmm. speaks to me, a kind of intimacy between those families. That's an incredibly different story than the heart-wrenching stories of your own family as a child being, you know, kind of limited to your town because you didn't know how racist the next town was going to be or knowing which house to stay away from because you're not allowed to touch the fence. Kind of those details of segregation are really upended by this, I won't say upended, I'm not that naive, are just so different. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, uh, in the story of this family relationship between uh, Nettie um, Ware, John Ware's eldest daughter, yeah. and the Mallory family, such that um, those curlers would exist for you to have. Well, the uh, truth of moment. it, the mm -hmm. truth of it is that in my life as well, there were also neighbors who we had that kind of intimacy with, mm -hmm. um, and in Nettie's life there would also have been neighbors who were hostile. So that is the trick of life, isn't it? When you live in communities such as we live, we of African descent live in here in Alberta, is that you do find your way to some, some really good people who are, um, who do stand in, in relief against those other awful experiences that are also part of your everyday life. 
and that Mary kept all those things. And really that room was full of Nettie's stuff. She lived in a small house and she allowed one entire room to be occupied by those things. And it, it wasn't even her primary relationship. Her husband, Don Mallory Sr., was the friend of Nettie and Mildred. And Mary Mallory married into that. Um, Don Mallory Sr. was very old and very ill when I first met the Mallorys. And he was thrilled that somebody would drive down to Kirkcaldy, Alberta from Calgary to come and talk to him about his relationship with the Wares. And he told me that Nettie and Mildred were the first pe people other than his mother and father who saw him when he was born. So this was a relationship going back decades, you know. Um, and they were also very good friends with Spencer Lewis, who was Mildred Ware's brother. They had Spencer Lewis's beautiful old violin. And Spence Lewis was famous for making music in Calgary in the 1910s. You know, like there were just so many connections and, the, and meeting the Mallorys was an incredible blessing. And it turned out they felt the same about it because somebody else was coming along to pick up the threads that Don Mallory Sr. and Nettie had been investigating together it was lovely it's really amazing uh to just be in contact with these overlapping lives you know I think Nettie used to show us lived from 1900 to 1989 is that close yeah she was born in 1893 wow. mm -hmm. and she lived into the 1990s yes mm-hmm She was 96 years old, and I think. I'm sorry. And her father had been her father had been a slave. Mm -hmm. And you know, the Mallorys knew her. So in just two generations, you have this living memory of American slavery, but then you also have these incredible changes in politics yeah. and social structure. I just one of the things that your film made me think about so much was how connected we are to the past, just in yes. being connected to our parents and grandparents. That's right. And the stories that can pass us by if we don't uh, pay that much attention. 100%, um, Stephanie. Um, I often say, I have a photograph of me being held by one of my great grandfathers, mm -hmm. my grandmother's father. And he was not enslaved. He was the son of people who were enslaved. But my other great grandfather was enslaved. So people tend to think of that period of time as long, long ago in the past. But when you think that my grandfather, who I knew very intimately, was raised by a person who had been enslaved, and my mother was raised by my grandfather, generationally, that's not very long ago, we are still very connected to our past. I have so many questions for you. I'm going to skip some of them. Um, because I want to ask you a couple more and then uh, uh, get to some questions in the Q&A. Um, uh, so the John Weir Reclaimed is included here in the UCSB Carsey Wolf Center series called Borders. 
And I was just wondering um, whether or how that film resonates with you when you think about your film. Uh, I have been so curious, first of all, about whether this film would have any resonance across the 49th parallel, because it is, it is in some ways very specific to this place where I have was born and have lived my whole life. And that whole Western mythology that's so deeply impacted me and then was taken away from me and then was given back to me by John Ware. Um, that feels kind of regionally specific. And as you pointed out, in the US, that whole Western mythology actually does hold a spot of some kind in your entire national narrative in a way that I, I don't think it does here. Even though all across Canada, we would have shared that sort of agricultural heritage and there would have been cowboys everywhere at some point. Um, the rest of the country really packed that up and put it away a long time ago. <laughs> um, so that's one question that, that comes to me when I think about people in America watching this film. But I also feel that for people of African descent, where I live and with my particular history, we're, we're kind of borderless. That 49th parallel doesn't mean very much because so, so many of our people had people just on the other side or, um, you know, even in the South or Oklahoma where my people came from in 1910. And because we had created these five small black settlements in Northern Alberta and in Saskatchewan, that, that provincial border also didn't really, we knew it was there. And I, and I'm not saying that people didn't know that they were in Canada, but we are kind of a borderless people. Mm -hmm. And I think that was also part of the appeal of John Ware for me was, um, sharing that that dual identity that had a border but didn't didn't erase any of those pieces of our identity um i don't know if that answers your question but oh my goodness yes it answers the question so amazingly i you know i i'm just struck by this notion of uh african americans as borderless people we think often and you know correctly about indigenous uh peoples or uh, first nation peoples as borderless people right that um the because the black the blackfoot them. nation absolutely really mm -hmm. um is is very much on both sides of that border yeah i'm fascinated by a couple of things i'm really fascinated by the the migration of the 1200 people um that your uh, uh, ancestors were a part mm -hmm. of, mm -hmm. um, you know, for 1200 people to move across 2,500 miles uh, together once, is, yeah. is an amazing, it's like a town moving across the land. Well, in and some so cases it was, in some cases, mm -hmm. entire black towns packed up and, and came, you know, 40, 50 families together. 
Uh, and it, the number, you know, is, is quite conservatively estimated. I wouldn't be surprised if it was more like 2000 it was a, a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And they were hoping for more, but the Canadian government's response to the migration was so hostile that really this notion that they had that they would create these black spaces in northern Canada, northern northwestern Canada, was uh, a dream that was intentional and then was was not to be because of the hostility that they encountered when they came here. Yeah, it's a pretty incredible story and very unknown. It was mm-hmm. one of my goals for the film to share, just to put plant that seed as well. We're here. That's a lot of people. Yeah. <laughs> I can't get my kid in the car. I mean, <laughs> to think about all the children that were in that caravan, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. Um, yeah. on horseback and with wagons. And you know. on trains and, yeah. And the amount of time it would have taken you know, there's a, there's a drive there. Um, And this also undermines this mythology we have in the U.S. about Canada as freedom land, right, that we get Mm -hmm. when we think about um, the Underground Railroad and Canada as that part of that North Star of freedom. Um, This is one of the things that uh, strikes me when we think about borders. Um, And I I really just uh, appreciate that notion of uh, a kind of African-American borderless a way of being. Um, we mentioned the Blackfoot, and I just want to uh, take us on a little bit of an aside. I think it was really creative and amazing for you to uh, look for the translation of the racist term that had been used to describe John Ware, bad black white man. Um, and you know the the black white man I understand very mm-hmm. clearly. Yeah, that totally. An English speaker, yeah. and um, you know, yeah, like that a, makes uh, sense. Linguist, Anglo or Gringo or something, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and you were after that notion of bad. You know, mm-hmm. like uh, where did that come from? Um, and she gives us, uh, you know, she, what's fascinating is the, the untranslatability of some of the black language. Um, that makes it unlikely that uh, the Blackfoot were calling him by an epithet, Um, but really fascinating about the untranslatability of what people called him that supposedly came or was related to indigenous language. Yeah, I'm, that's one of the things that I am most happy that I was able to address in the film. Uh, At the time of John Ware, the Blackfoot language in this part of the world was was not a written language, it was an oral language. And so almost all of those kinds of stories that we have in our in our old dusty history books here, are somebody's interpretation or translation or attempt to spell something that um, was not was not their business really (laughs) to be doing and you do have to wonder what people's agenda was uh, around that Um, I've as I say in the film I've I've asked many Blackfoot speakers and I've had some speculate well you know kind of sounds like maybe it was this but for the most part people are just utterly puzzled by it and I was really happy to have that conversation with my friend Wanda about that. 
Yeah. Um, I have two related questions. Um, I am a playwright and an actor. Are <laughs> and you? So really, I am. Uh-oh. I wanted to ask you about the play. I wanted mm-hmm. to ask you um, how you came upon making a play first before you came upon making that film. Mm-hmm. And I'm interested in how the play was structured and what drove you to use song and compose songs. And I have a related question from uh, an audience member who says, about your film, I love the way you managed to recover for John a rich, vibrant, and lively family life, and that you do through su- through such close collaborations with your own immediate and extended family. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the questioner asks, can you talk a bit about family collaboration as a method of creative practice as well as of doing history? So, in that sense, this uh, this um, questioner is also kind of getting at that. Um, story of the play that I'd love to hear, because it seems like your family was a part of that project too. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. Well, first of all, may I say, I'm not surprised to hear you're an actor because you have such a wonderful voice. And um, even the way you move is you, you are you are in control. Uh, so I, I think you'd be a wonderful actor. I can't wait to see you in something and also <laughs> to read, read one of your plays. Um, yeah, I, I had made that presentation in 2012. <clears throat> there was a, a friend of mine named Tundi Duwadu, who was the artistic director of a festival in Calgary called Africa Day. And he reminded me in 2012 that all that research I'd been compiling about John Ware should be put to use because he said, Cheryl, we can't let John Ware be forgotten in this 100th celebration of the Calgary Stampede, even though John Ware had died before the Stampede began in in 1912. So I had no intention of writing a play. I just made a presentation. There were slides and I was there talking about John Ware and what I'd learned and how much he meant to me. And I had hired a couple of actors and I had written, I think, three scenes between John and Mildred. And then I knew I wanted music because I always want music. And Miranda was very young at that time, studying creative writing at UBC, so in Vancouver. And uh, she was in the songwriting stream as well as other, other types of creative writing that she was doing. So I called her up and I said, Miranda, do you think you could write a song for my Black History Month presentation that is a country song with soul that's about the spring flood of 1902 that wiped out John and Mildred's house. <laughs> I was very specific. And she said, oh, no give small that. order. Exactly. She said, I'll give it a whirl. And then a couple of weeks later, she called and she sang um, spring 1902, which is the very last song you hear in the film where she's sitting beside John Ware's grave, John and Mildred's grave. Um, she sang that to me and I said, you nailed it, honey. And so Miranda was coming home for the weekend. So she was in that presentation, you know, she played and uh, played for it, played the guitar for the, the act, two actors who are both wonderful singers. Um, and then after that, the response to it was so strong, just because John Ware does that to people, people will even fall in love with an actor that's playing John Ware. He's just so compelling. And I, you know, I was really happy with the scenes I had written. Just being able to create Black love on stage is, 
something that matters deeply to me because I never had that. I never, I barely had, was able to see any black people on stage when I was growing up and never mind growing up like as an adult. And, and I never saw love between two black people on stage. So it evolved out of that. And um, that's when the idea to put myself into the story occurred to me because it's hard to tell a story about someone like John Ware, whose beginnings you don't know definitively. Heroic stories need a beginning. We need to know where that person came from in order to truly see their trajectory and their arc as a character. And I found um, that people weren't very interested in a historical play. So when I started to play around with the idea of, well, this isn't just history. It's about my life. Um, This person who's living and breathing and standing in front of you right now needed that story and she wasn't given it. And so the play is, is, um, is about my life too. And the decision to have music in it is was music is everywhere in my work and that collaboration that family collaboration is absolutely because John Ware in some ways is like an ancestor to me he's like a, a blood relative to me and he has no blood relatives to tell his story so it just made sense that I would bring my close circle into the telling of this story. And there's, you know, there's no closer circle than your own children. Um, At least that's the way it is for me. Uh, I love the Ware family so much. I love Nettie. She was so funny. Her writing, her sense of humor comes through in her own writing. And John Ware was so funny. The things, the stories people shared about him when he said this or he said that. Um, and so that notion of family laughter, which is is something that has lived in my home. Um, we laugh a lot together. And, and to be able to recreate that through my play and to bring that family love into the film as well was intentional and really important. That's a beautiful um, way to think about what the film feels like to watch, uh, to imagine that you are sort of, I don't know, offering your family love as a kind of descendant to John Ware's legacy. Um, and the songs are gorgeous. <laughs> and uh, I love it's them. It's beautiful to think of them as really originally composed. It's also fascinating to see the actors read from the historical documents. Mm-hmm. Um, there's Nettie's letters and journals that we hear from, but there's also these um, uh, journalistic accounts of where, you know, um, uh, some of them offensive or having offensive elements to them, but all, so many of them also just you know, celebrations and descriptions of what he accomplished. Like when he saved that train, that um, 
what the, the, the cattle and the um, herders from being flooded out and mm-hmm. someone gives a report of that that's mm-hmm. preserved in a newspaper. Um, it seems also unusual the way in which he comes out of the historical record. I mean, you know, there's traces right here and there, but the substance of the traces are so remarkable, so specific, so um, uh, intentional in their drawing of a kind of a character. Mm -hmm. And I'm really interested in whether there were others. Was it John Ware and like five other people from the era who were being talked about in this way in public uh, print or is that something also that's really specific to him? I mean, because it just seems to me to speak to how extraordinary he is. He was extraordinary and he was memorable for a lot of different reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, and as David Breen says in the, uh, in the little interview I did with him, that was unusual. It was unusual for an actual cow hand to be named in those newspaper articles. Uh, and it was because of John Ware's skill that he first started being mentioned. But then there were all these other ap- attributes he had that were being memorialized by neighbors and, and um, even hostile people. Even, um, you know, one person who, well, I'm going to blank on his name, but he's supposedly the basis for the character, the Virginian. You know, those, that mythology, that, that story. Um, he was at the Bayou Ranch. Was it the Bayou or the Corn when John Ware was there and um, was shocked to realize that he was expected to sit down at the dining table with all the other cowboys, which included this one black cowboy. So all these kinds of memories that were preserved are a testament to the fact that he was remarkable. There are a few other cowboys of that area of that era who are remembered but mostly because they went on to become huge cattle barons you know I'm not sure if we would remember George Lane quite as well as we do if it hadn't been for the fact that he um, became so wealthy and was one of the founders of the stampede one of the big four they were called there were four men who put up the money for the stampede and there are people who speculate that if John Ware had lived, it's possible that they would have been the big five instead. There's a building on the stampede grounds that says the big four in giant letters. And there are many posters from those Calgary stampede celebrations that have the faces of the big four on them. And I often wonder how it would have changed Calgary and our history. If, if there had been a black face on that poster. And if one of the big four, if it had been the big five, and if one of those people was John Ware, would have been amazing. That would be a really awesome song. I think <laughs> you should tell your daughter that she has to write the big five for us. <laughs> <laughs> I will tell her it would be a good um, song. And an art project that puts him in there, you yeah. know, uh, as, yeah. as, a, as a special poster. Um, I'm wondering if you have, I I know we have to um, begin to wind up, even though I don't want to stop talking about with you about this. Um, But I have uh, one more question. There's a couple of questions that we have about um, uh, 
getting the film or getting the story taught in schools. So in elementary schools or um, secondary schools in Calgary um, or uh, further um, uh, across the border uh, mm -hmm. in the US sort of getting the work uh, to be a part of um, school curriculum. Mm -hmm. um, the National Film Board of Canada, who I should say I, I thank for helping me to make this film and my two producers, Bonnie Thompson and David Christensen really had to go to bat for me so many times, for example, to get allow me to do the archaeological dig. Bonnie had to fight so hard for that. And I'm very it's grateful. It's so amazing. <laughs> yeah, it was unbelievable. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, there, there is a wing of the NFB that's called Campus. And so the film is accessible to teachers in schools and, and of course, on university and post-secondary campuses through that. There's been a lot of interest in it in schools. It has has been shown in a lot of schools. And once we um, have our premiere in the U.S., because this screening, I don't know if you know, this is the first time an American audience has been able to see the film. Um, once we actually have a premiere and it's widely available, I think that will will definitely be a focus of the National Film Board. But, you know, for the younger kids, I mean, the decision about whether to deal with the N-word and the way in which it was used against John Ware and then his kids and then us and then, you know, my kids, our nieces and nephews, um, that was a tough decision because I knew there would be interest in schools. And sometimes school kids cannot handle that discussion. And, and I, I can recall a presentation I was doing in a classroom where there were just a couple of black kids and right in the, in the row right in front of me as I was dealing with some of the racist incidents that had happened in my life, um, a child was called the N-word by a, a kid sitting beside him right in front of me, right in the front row. So I was fully aware that there are times and places where that might be hurtful and harmful to the younger kids. So mm -hmm. in the end, that was a really agonizing decision. But I, I also wanted to push back against those people who still do that to me the minute they hear John Ware's name. Um, I wanted to publicly state that is not cool. And I wanted people to understand how painful that was for John Ware's children. So in terms of elementary school children, I, I, I'm, I think it would really depend on the skill of the teacher about whether that part of the discussion could be handled. So mm -hmm. I have mixed feelings about younger kids seeing the film, actually. Mm -hmm. Kids in their homes, you know, with their parents, especially black children in homes with their parents, I think absolutely, but it's difficult. In interracial settings, it's difficult because you'd actually don't know what the dynamic is between uh, black children in predominantly white classrooms. Having That's right. Having to witness together that discussion without having either the background or the experience to defend themselves or talk people through it. Yeah. Yeah, it's powerful. Um, observation. I, I'm wondering if you've learned more since 2017 about John Ware 
I have family. Uh-huh. I have, and I I am going to. I'm one of those writers. I don't know if if this is what you're like, but I I I kind of believe you sort of curse a project if you talk about it too much ahead of time. Mm-hmm. And I also, <laughs> you know, there there are also things that I want to reveal in my own way. Mm-hmm. And I have choices to make about how to share further information that I'm learning. So I, all I can say is I promise I'll get it out there in some form or other. <laughs> okay. Can I ask one question? Okay. Can you tell me if there were white Nelsons and Wares in Sheep's Creek, Tennessee in either 1860 or 1870? Uh, yes. Oh, yes. Yes. Both. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Nelsons and Wares. Yes. Okay, that's it. <laughs> that's all I'll ask. Okay, in the end, there's this lovely image of the actor who embodies the historical John Ware on horseback. And he lassos the marker that memorializes <laughs> Ware's settling of the land in 1887. Yeah. And so he is fictional and he grasps both, both at the past, Ware's past, and at the present memorialization of him as practiced in the memorial stone. And then the lasso remains while he fades. And, you know, you have a fiction grasping at a memory and haunting grasping towards the present. And, you know, the image does feel very related to your own story of discovery. How do you feel about that final moment? How did you come up with it? What is it saying for you? So I I love the way you have framed that moment thank you for that um it was a gift because fred whitfield was uh, just standing off to the side as we were planning our next shots and uh, then i just heard and looked up and he just did that and showing off (laughs) He was showing off the skill as a roper and uh, the minute he did it, of course, I, you know, I got Doug Monroe to bring, you know, to turn the camera and, uh, and have him do that again so we could capture it because I did want to have him sort of disappear behind that stone you know, to, oh, to have that, not, not the ghost, but the presence of John Ware to be in the very present moment on that day. And in the moment in the 1970s, when that stone was placed there, and then to be there in 18. 18- 88 when he would have walked on that same spot so it was a perfect gift to have given to me thank you so much for talking with us thank you for letting us be the first people in the u.s to see Mm -hmm. your beautiful film um and allowing john Ware to speak to us from uh our past uh across both sides of the border um We can't be more, we couldn't be more grateful to you. Thank you for this gift. 
You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.